Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Pradhana Pandu Mahadika, who is a co-founder of the Gwethi Magir blog, which makes historical martial arts accessible to Indonesian people with limited or no English skills. He's also an archer, tailor and translator. So, without further ado, Pradhana, welcome to the show. Glad to be here too, Guy. And just to clarify, it's not just the blog, it's actually the blog of the club and that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay, so so my my internet research skills have totally failed me again. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's it's the name of the club, right? Yes, and yeah, the blog. Okay. And the blog. Um, and whereabouts exactly are you? Uh, I'm in Bandung, Indonesia. Uh, it's kind of a big but re- relatively unknown country, I guess. Okay, so it's. It is one of the Indonesian islands, correct? No, it's one of the Indonesian cities. It's more like uh, Indonesia is well, most for most people, it's easiest easiest to you know uh, say that it's somewhere between Singapore and Australia. And it takes <laughs> up most of that space. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, yeah. it's kind of bigger than that. To be fair, it's between India and Australia. If if you, if you draw a straight li- straight line between the two, then it's right in the middle and. Yeah, it's a pretty big country, about the size of the continental United States, but the United States is mostly land, while Indonesia is mostly water. That's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. So, um, which island are you on? Java. Java. A pretty weird okay. island, yeah. It's kind of the size of... It's almost about the same size as England, not Britain, but... England plus a little yeah. uh, no I think England is slightly bigger okay as in up to the western limit the Clyde the time no no yeah but England as in not including Scotland and stuff yeah, yeah. England England not Britain yeah but yeah. it has something like 150 million people on it bloody hell yep 150 million yep there's about 40 million in England Yep, and 2 million of wow. them are in my city. Let's not wow. even talk about the capital, Jakarta, because that one has an official population figure of 8 million and an unofficial one of anywhere between 10 and 15. Blimey. Okay, and Java is where we get the name for the coffee from, right? Yep. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> do it's you like drink a lot of coffee? Can I, can I, I, I've only been to Indonesia once. Let me just clarify my experience of Indonesia. I was in Singapore yep. in 2006. Uh, and on that trip, I had my fiance at the time, now my wife, with me. And we went to this little resort place, uh, Bintan, which is like a, a short ferry ride from Singapore. And we stayed there for a few days. And I got to ride an elephant, which is like the best thing ever. And... That was my sum total experience of Indonesia. So I'm, I've been, I've sort of been there, but that's like, you know, paddling the off the shore edge. of Cornwall for a couple of days and then saying you've been to Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's more like you've been to Jersey 
or girl thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's Indonesia too, because that's the thing about Indonesia. It's like when you talk about Indonesian culture, it's more like you speak about is the equivalent to speaking to about uh, to speaking speaking about uh, European culture. It's right. such a big place with so many different people, so many different languages, and yeah. So it's like more like a federation of states. It's actually a unitary state. It's um, Malaysia is smaller, but it's a federation. We have a unitary state <laughs> with provinces, but we have um, just an insane amount of diversity. It's a bit like, just to illustrate, it's like in my just in my island alone, it's like there are at least three really big ethnic groups with mm-hmm. several smaller sub ones. It's like the Javanese is the biggest one, then they live mostly in the central and eastern part of the island. And then there's the Sundanese who li- live basically where I am. But I'm not Sundanese, I'm Javanese. Okay. And then there's the Maduris who's actually from a, from a large island off the coast of Java but there but there's all, a lot of them so actually there are more Maduris living in Java than in Madura itself <laughs> and they're okay. mostly in the east and so it's like and each of these three has their own language and or also it would be more fair to say that the Sundanese have their language and the Maduris have their own language and then the Javanese have maybe three or four different variants of languages. Do you know Oki from Surabaya on the other end of the island? He has a club too? I don't know. No, maybe you haven't uh, heard about him. But yeah, it's like the funny thing is that my Javanese, um, as in my my mother's Javanese to be specific, Mm -hmm. It's actually the kind of Javanese that comes from the center of the island, from the uh, from the center of the not former. The kingdom still exists. They're they're just no longer sovereign. They're more like yeah. It's like oh damn, my grandmother is literally a princess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically, it's like like imagine court Javanese, very polite, very mm-hmm. complicated, and. Oki's Javanese is the ruder version. It's more like uh, he's in. He would be comparable to what Australian is if it's English. Ah, interesting. Like you insult people uh, if you want to be polite. It's like if you're being normal, you in, you insult the people you're talking with. But if you suddenly become polite, that means you hate the person you're talking with. Do you know when I first went to Australia? I was picked up from the airport by a guy called Scott Nimmo, absolutely lovely man. And he was very careful to orient this English bloke who'd never been to Australia before to the norms of local culture. And he, he felt he had to warn me that, um, you know, if Australians like you, they'll call you a cunt. <laughs> and so, he, and he was clearly just a, he was just a little bit not sure whether how comfortable I would be in, in this sort of rough and ready environment so I, I leaned over and I said well in that case Scott I hope you will take it the right way if I say I think you're an absolute fucking cunt I went alright you'll be right <laughs> so. <laughs> oh yeah well I know Scott through Facebook so we've never met but and he has never called me a cunt but 
I think Harry has from Melbourne. <laughs> well, yeah, you you know you're doing all right with Australians when they are being extremely yeah, rude. Yeah, that's how. I will, I will drop. I will drop Scott a note and tell him to call you a cunt just so you feel a bit more in, included in in Australian humour. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh yeah, my father is also Madurese, and uh, so his Japanese is also relatively rude compared to my mother's. <laughs> I think more after my mother. <laughs> okay. Well, we we can be as polite as you like on this show, but as you. Just heard we don't. Well, if you to want be. to speak Japanese, maybe or or I don't know if you want me to speak English with a Japanese accent. Do <laughs> 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 Japanese accent? Well, actually, uh, Katie, who will be transcribing this episode, would much prefer it. I think if we, if we spoke English that was easy for the transcription engines <laughs> to recognize. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I know because I've done transcriptions myself. What with my line of work and all. Right. Um, now we are going to get into that, but yes. before we get there, how did you get into historical martial arts? That's uh, that's you know sometimes that question is that question just reminds me of how old I am because I think I first ran into it when I was in elementary school and I had mm-hmm. aspirations of becoming a fantasy novelist. And of course, you want to do research. You want to be able to write fight scenes reali- re- realistically. And yep. interestingly, that was also uh, when the HECA, the Historical Armed Combat Association, I think you know oh, yeah. that thing. It was yeah, not, it became, it it became yet, ARMA. Yeah, it wasn't yet the ARMA. It was yeah. still led by Hank Reinhardt, I think. It was in 1998 yeah. when I ran into their website. That was a while ago. Yeah, and... Well, it's like that. So I <laughs> read Kisuda <Sorry>. Height. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that's a funny thing. Because, yeah. In Indonesia, we our response would usually vary by religion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so you came across the what was then the hacker, the Historical Armed yep. Combat Association website. In about 1998. Yeah. And, I mean, how, how, I mean, in 1998, I don't think I even knew the internet existed. Oh, no, I must have done because, yeah, but. Well, yeah, my, what, go ahead. My internet back then was also still a dial-up thing, you know, that kind of uh, modem that connects to the, to to the copper wire phone network. And, yeah, so. I I don't exactly remember how ran I how I ran across it either, but I found it by while searching about information about you know how to sword fights and yeah, right cool. realistic sword fights and well and then I got to middle school and then I dabbled a little in modern fencing, but mm-hmm. unfortunately I didn't go into it as seriously I sh- as I should have because. You know, reading the Hacob blog and no, and and by then it was becoming the armizing, and John Clements was already saying that, oh no, modern fencing is unrealistic. So I was just doing it as you know, as a second best thing, mm-hmm. which I kind of regret later. Yeah, I and, find I I did historical I did um, sport fencing quite a bit um, as a teenager and at university because it was the closest thing I could get to real sword fighting, and although. It is unrealistic in many ways. 
it still has an awful lot of useful stuff in it. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like it's something I only realized much later. Mm. Yeah, and then I got to university that was in the early 2000s, I think. Mm-hmm. And in college, I got into archery and, you know, and became practically the club's resident coach for 10 years, even after I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, so the joke what, what was kind of actually... What? What kind of archery? Modern sport archery, but okay. uh, it's like, it's kind of a pretty relaxed club. And we also did plenty of, you know, uh, some draw archery, the Eastern kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's practically, if you could bring the bow there, you're, we're okay with it. <laughs> okay. And yeah, it's like, the joke was that I actually went to college for archery. My extracurricular were the classes. <laughs> I had the same thing with... When I went to university, I was doing English Lit and um, Physiology and Pharmacology as a minor and um, Spanish as a minor. And really, I was doing fencing on Mondays and Wednesdays, Tai Chi on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, Kabuto on Fridays, Karate on Saturdays, and on Sundays, there's usually a tournament somewhere. So yeah, really, I was at university to do martial arts and, <laughs> and you know, the, the sort of formal instructional stuff was you know the thing i was actually there to get a degree in was yeah fairly low down on my list of priorities yeah that's i suspect that might be more typical than i than we think in this yeah. community <laughs> <laughs> yes oh yeah well um, in college i also went into an aikido dojo and i was there oh, for I a while, it's like i'll it's like this was the kind of people these were the kind of people I hung out hung out with and sure. it's like several of them uh, were also uh, curious about uh, about you know about European the old European traditions and it's mm-hmm. like so we created a, some kind of an informal study group it never even had a name and the membership was constantly changing and so we practiced and it was unfortunately kind of messy we mostly just whacked each other resorts and it wasn't very systematic until that's how we all started yeah. i mean you know the, the youth of today they don't know they're born they show up to a club and there's structured classes and there's loner gear and like that but back in the not so good old days you just sort of got whatever kit you could and sort of whacked your friends as best you could and that's that's how we started really yeah, the unfortunate thing was that we were starting to get an idea of how to train more systematically in 2010, mm-hmm. 2011. And that was also when I started to, you know, realize the value of what I had learned in modern fencing and then try to read on it. And it's like the difference is that, oh, now I understand why we did these drills. Right. What's this for? What's that? And, but yeah. That was also around the time when people had, were, start, were starting to graduate from the uh, master's programs. Uh, one of them was even already getting into a... P- oh, not, not just getting. It's like... So it's like uh, the old group was starting to scatter all over the place, some to Jakarta mm-hmm. and some to... Some to... Yeah, you know, many of them went abroad. The, the, one, the one feather we had... Uh, back then, the one steel practice sword that survived everything we threw at them was an mm-hmm. arms and armor factor fech- spiel. That's my favorite sword. Yeah, and um, I have I have one right here. Oh, I'm not surprised. It's like we 
we kind of pitched in together several people to you know to uh to buy one and it's like each of us part out part own it but one of us who went to the US ended up uh buying the rest of the shares when he left and took it with him ah okay that's unfortunate yeah because they are well, they are very very good training tools but they are not cheap yep and well it's kind of like uh it was also after the 2008 cr- financial crunch anyway so it's mm. like most of the rest of us could use the money <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure um, and yeah so I mean, I imagine like the Indonesian historical martial arts scene mostly interacts with itself in Indonesian. Yeah. Uh, it's so, kinda... so, so sorry. So those of us on the outside who don't speak Indonesian don't see any of it. So well, could you just tell us a bit about what it, what's what is the scene like in Indonesia? Well, it's a bit like it's kind of. There had been uh, enthusiasts, uh, you know, lone wolf enthusiasts, uh, mm-hmm. uh, studying it and all for years, for a while. But it's like uh, the first uh, in the early uh, in the early 2010s, there was no formal clubs at all and everything. And I, yeah, and of course my old my old study group was disbanding, and I had nobody to practice with and yeah for well it's like we were just you know contacting each other randomly via Facebook that was also when I got to know Oki from Surabaya uh, it's like he's the first uh, practitioner that I didn't know personally before I met him and everything okay uh, I only met him in person last year believe it or not wow. eh, no 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 2020 that's Well, uh, yeah, in pandemic times, we all lose a year here or there. It's like last year was 2019, right? Yep. <laughs> well, actually, I still remember at least it's 2020, but uh, what is this? Is this 2024 already? And then, yeah, so I only really got a strong impulse to restart the whole thing when I, when there was when I got news of a workshop with Ilka Hartikainen. I think he's Ilka. Yes, Ilka. Ilka. He's one yeah, of he, your students, right? He is one of my students. Yeah, he he trained with me from about 2002 till about I think it was 2009, something like that. Yeah, there was a workshop on Bolognese. Mm-hmm. Bolognese. How is it pronounced yeah. in English? Bolognese. Bolognese. <laughs> yeah, we say we say Bolognese usually. Yes, Kerma Bolognese. It's actually easier to pronounce it in Italian than in English. Sure. Yeah, and it's like so he was teaching a workshop there for a week for the famous uh, people there for the club yeah. people there and in Singapore but, yeah but there was also a weekend workshop open for random people so I signed up for it and I saw that oh damn I missed that community and maybe this time I should build one more formally okay and yeah so I start by just checking out the you know furniture shops if any of them would be willing to make wooden swords and it took a while because it turns out that you know getting wooden source of the proper specifications is kind of much tougher than i expected yeah i'm i'm lucky yeah. i'm a woodworker so i can just make my own but yeah. it's and actually building a a wooden sword is is not a trivial operation because you've got to get it right or it will just break yeah you um, probably know know it even better than i do it's like i was 
it's like I went through several iterations with the furniture shop and I think it was only the third or the fourth that was satisfactory but once that got a little bit decent I bought 10 or something and then mm-hmm. you know it's like at the around the same time I was talking with uh, I was uh, having some conversation with conversations with people from the Tolkien society because mm-hmm. you know of uh, they were the people who seemed to be most enthusiastic about this kind of thing. It's like there were right. other uh, groups that might be interested, right? From the martial arts side the, and then also other fictional fandoms. But, you know, the ones that seem like they were really, ooh, I, we want to do this. It's like that's yeah. from the Tolkien Society. And so at the beginning of 2016, I went to Jakarta, brought the swords and, yeah, and, you know, to a meeting that we had arranged to just hang out and maybe practice a little. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was expecting that maybe two or three people there would uh, buy the swords I had, you know, yeah, two or three or maybe four of the swords I brought there. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the enthusiasm was so high that I that they bought almost all of it and I had to insist that I'm gonna keep two of this for <laughs> to purchase <laughs> in Bandung because if not uh damn they would really have bought all of it. And I would have wow. had to make to order a whole new batch from the furniture shop and that was the story of how the club was founded in February twenty sixteen. All right, cool. And are there lots of clubs in Indonesia now? Uh Okay, the one with formal organization, I think there are three or four, depending on how you mm-hmm. count it. It's like there's us, the Guesimigir. We have one branch in Bandung and one in Jakarta. And we're, well, we're kind of, it's like we're kind of autonomous from each other. We don't, uh, we don't spend a great deal of effort, uh, you know, synchronizing curricula and everything. But it's like we generally consider each other to be the same club and if you right. get in the wrong city you just practice with <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's nice and, and it's and then there's another there's there's another club in Surabaya that's the one started by Oki which I meant mm-hmm. which I've mentioned before and then there's another one in Jakarta so Jakarta has two clubs one is wow. one of our branches and the other is actually it split from us in 2019 over some differences in you know what they wanted to focus on it's like fair enough the, yeah the founder yeah. wanted to uh have a paying club uh yeah and also wanted to focus more on you know competitive fan on the competitive side ah, of demon. yeah sure yeah well we wanted to keep something of a more big ten approach because some of us don't have competitive aspirations some of us do and sure yeah and so those are the three uh, major clubs and but Oki uh, just before the pandemic he moved to Malang another city in the east of the of the of the island so it's even further east than Surabaya and he also hung out with the people he previously knew there and started a somewhat formal study group but it doesn't practice much when he's not around so it's like when he's there there's a club when he's not there there's something like half a club (laughs) (laughs) okay and these are all on the island of java right yeah uh unfortunately we haven't we don't have anything yet on the other islands just individual practitioners 
Okay. So, well, I think if COVID can spread like it does, I yeah. think historical martial arts can spread too. Yeah, we're kind of wishing to, you know, go on trips and, you know, uh, deliver mm. workshops to people in cities sure. that don't have them yet. But, yeah, it's like we managed to start at, in, at the beginning of 2020 with, uh, with, an, with, with a bit of a workshop that combined and that, you know, that invited people from all the three existing clubs back then. In, mm. the, there was a workshop in Surabaya in January 2020. But then you know what happened afterwards, the lockdown in March 2020 yeah. and later. So it's like we haven't had, we haven't been able to, you know, push that any further yet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really quite difficult for a lot of people because things, things were really kind of exploding in 2019. And then 2020 yeah. happened and all this sort of development. I know several people who used to have permanent spaces that they were they had for their club and those spaces have had to close because they can't pay the rent because people can't show up to train and so they're not paying training fees and so the space goes um yeah it's been pretty brutal um but we keep going yep. <laughs> we, we, um, now when i was doing some research for this conversation i noticed that your linkedin account has your job title as head cutter which for a historical martial arts person is perfect, um, but I don't think you're actually talking about cutting people's heads. Well, yeah, that's actually a pun because okay, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's it's actually for Sartoria Insulindica, my uh, one man tailoring sweatshop. It's not okay. exactly one man. Sometimes I subcontract the lesser work, but it's like especially during the pandemic, it's been. <laughs> one man sweatshop, <laughs> and you, I, you, I noticed that many of the tailoring houses in Seville Row or in Paris, like mm. the title of their um, most skilled uh, pattern maker, usually the most skilled person there is the one who makes the patterns, right? Because yeah. the sewing and then much of the uh, manual work is usually done by the apprentices and journeymen, so to mm -hmm. say. Well, the Head cutter is the one who makes the patterns because he's the he or she is the one who knows how the pattern pieces interact with the three dimensional body shape of the client. Yeah, and yeah, and the and the most skilled cutter in the house is usually the head cutter, and I found that to be a really nice pun with my martial arts activity. So why Excellent. not? So you titled yourself. Excellent. <laughs> Good. So you're you're the head cutter in your shop. So what kind of clothes do you make? Uh, that kind of varies because it's like I started from both ends of the temporal spectrum. I learned first by making tea tunics. Mm -hmm. I still have one of the oldest tunics I made, I think. Okay. You know, the early medieval tea tunics because they were really easy to learn to make, right? Sure. If you have a sense of geometry. If you don't, it's, it's going to be more like a three-dimensional puzzle that doesn't make any sense <laughs> uh, so hang on um so what is the connection between geometry and assembling medieval clothing and what and making medieval clothing uh well i don't know if you've discussed this with jess finley or not but it's like the early medieval clothing is basically cut uh from uh cut 
as a number of rectangular or triangular pieces in order to conserve fabric. So it's like right. uh, the way we cut clothes today uh, with many curves and everything, it tends to leave many areas of unused or unusable cloths because what's left is not big enough for the remaining pattern pieces, right? Uh, and, okay. Yeah, and we call that, some people call that leftover, some, some people call that cabbages. So if you hear cabbages in a sewing or tailoring setting, that's what it means. Okay. Because they look like, you know, chopped cabbage leaves, I guess. Right. <laughs> and yeah, but with the with early medieval tailoring, we're in a setting where uh, cloth was a really expensive commodity. It's like yeah. spinning was notoriously, you know, time consuming, right? If you have to mm -hmm. use a spindle and a... Uh, uh, yeah, and, a drop spindle. Yeah, yeah, and spin and spin the thread manually, and then you also have to weave it manually. Also, the weaving is actually much, you know, much more mechanizable than the spinning for quite yeah. a while. So the, you know, the critical what the critical pass in production was in the spinning. You couldn't spin enough to set to satisfy the needs of your weavers and. Ah, okay. Eventually, consumers. It's like, but basically, cloth production was kind of complicated. And when you have to weave with hand looms, you're also limited by the span of your hands. It's gonna be hard to pass the shuttle uh, if if the width of the fabric is wider than the span of your arms, right? Right, have, of course. Yeah, you have to pass the shuttle behind the fabric and then flip it and uh, pass the shuttle and. So yeah. the width of fabric was also very limited. We often see some things as narrow as 45 or 60 centimeters. That's like 18 wow. to 24 inches. So with that those narrow. narrow pieces of fabric, you're going to have to combine them to, you know, uh, envelope the entire circumference of the body, right? Mm -hmm. So people got really creative. They found ways to cut rectangular and triangular pieces so that as little of it as possible was wasted. Okay. But uh, it's like the difference is that with modern cutting uh, cutting methods, it's like the the shapes of the pattern pieces are very different. You know which one is the body piece because it looks like, uh, it's like you could recognize if a t-shirt was cut up and then somebody just drew, drew, uh, drew a line around it, then you're gonna mm -hmm recognize it as the body piece of a t-shirt right sure yeah but yeah it's like so it's that it's like that you know the difference this is the body this is the sleeves and maybe you could set the right sleeve into the left by mistake but that's, <laughs> but it's like oh, okay it's, it's still a sleeve you're just gonna have to at least you're not putting the body in the place of a sleeve but with yeah. the with the medieval rectangular cutting system, which is unique to medieval Europe, it's actually a different a different but uh, a different cutting system was developed pretty much everywhere. It's like China had their own. The Japanese kimono is still a rectangular cutting, yeah. and yeah, and Persian and Ottoman clothes were also based on that. It's like that kind of thing was uh, originally emphasized. Uh, using rectangular pieces to take advantage of the rectangular shape of the fabric and uh, make garments with as little waste as possible. Huh. Yeah, but because the but because of that, the problem is if everything is rectangular, how do you tell apart between the body and the sleeves and 
<laughs> right. Well, as a woodworker, what you do is you write on it in something like chalk. <laughs> so, yeah, so like, like when I'm making a piece of furniture, I'll have a stack of pieces and in I use a really soft pencil so you get big, dark writing and I write what it is on it. <laughs> that way I yeah, know. That's, so I would guess they would chalk it. Yeah, that's smart. And we we don't exactly know how they did it, but uh, they, they're probably several different methods. But it's like basically the idea is that you don't uh, you only do the chalk marking after you have a mental picture of what the finished product is going to look like and how the pieces are gonna come together into it, right? Right. And it's like it's that mental model that's usually uh, most difficult to acquire for beginners. So it's like how the two-dimensional pattern pieces uh, translate into which seams and which yeah. ones should be sewn first. Because if you sew the wrong seams first, it's gonna, it's not gonna make it impossible to finish the garment, but you, have, you might have to contort your way into. <laughs> okay. So do you mostly make medieval stuff or modern stuff? Mm, not really. That's the other thing that I, that I picked up when I was uh, first learning historical sewing. One was the very early medieval stuff, and the other was uh, there was a late 19th century tailoring manual available for coats and military uniforms from WDF Vincent. And I kind of read that and experimented with it and also asked around in tailoring forums and a few tailors, modern tailors I know, and I so it's like I basically started from both ends of the time spectrum. That was what that meant. Oh, I started wow. to be making modern, modern stuff. And, well, not exactly modern stuff. Uh, late 19th, very early 20th century stuff. And maybe 9th, 10th century stuff. And then started going towards the middle from there. <laughs> so if I wanted a late 19th century coat, you're the man to talk to. Well, kind of depends. It's like my work ethic isn't the best these days, so it's gonna, it's, it's like you might get it, but it's going to take rather longer than you expect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a very strict policy when I, when I um, hire people to make stuff for me is I never haggle on the price. Whatever they ask for, that's, if I can pay it, that's what they get. And I never, ever haggle about the time either. If they say it's going to take two years, I wait two years. That's fine. I don't mind. Because yeah, I've, I've been in the position of the furniture maker and literally one, one friend of mine moved into a new house and asked whether I could make this sort of TV stand thing for with like shelves and drawers and stuff for her. And I was like, and she was basically just asking it as a favor. Um, which is fine. You know, if she was putting up a shelf, of course, no problem, right? And I said, you don't actually know what you're asking for, do you? She said, mm, what do you mean? I said, well, that's going to take about 300 quid in materials and it's going to take me about six weeks of full-time work. And she went, oh, I thought you'd knock it up in an afternoon. Oh. <laughs> it's like, so yeah, I mean, she was asking for something reasonable, in her head <laughs> but the actuality of it is completely different so I know what it's like to have people 
Yeah, well, um, commissioning staff who have absolutely no idea of what it is they're really asking for. So my sympathies are entirely with the maker. Yeah, but I guess most people's uh, experience with furniture these days is like it's with IKEA stuff that can right. be assembled in one afternoon, but exactly. they don't how long it takes to design and cut and uh, match the right. pieces. Well, even the quality control could take hours. Right. right yeah, and and just finishing. Like, just the finishing can yeah. take ages. Ah, um, uh, the finishing, that 5% physically, but 80% in terms of time and effort. <laughs> yes. That also applies to clothes. Uh, the finishing is often the most tiring because, yeah, especially when you do the custom stuff, uh, making the, you know, the neckline neat or, you know, mm. the edges when, yeah, with the coat, there's often, with custom uh, with custom tailored coats, there's usually that pick stitching on the edges to keep the edge thin, right? So that it's not yeah. gonna balloon if you, if you, if you wash it or if you move it too much. So there's, and these stitchings are really tiny and really precise, and uh, the really good ones only do it by hand. And it's like it doesn't require much brain power, but it does take a great deal of time. You know, I got my wedding suit made by a tailor in Singapore, and yep. it was lovely, good suit. Uh, it has a, a like a morning coat, sort of oh. knee length jacket. It's beautiful, mm. um, and um, I needed to have it adjusted so that my sword would hang right. Because okay? oh. of course, I wasn't going to get married without wearing a sword. So oh. I took it to uh, a friend of mine in in Helsinki who is a tailor. Oh wait! Right. So you're planning to have the sword go over the front, or is there going to be a slit? It was there well, going to the, be a the slit? sword. The sword hung hangs on my left hip, and yep. it sticks out quite far behind. And the 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 splits on the morning coat. You know, you have a, usually a single split at the back. Yeah. It needed to have a split at the side instead of yeah. in the middle, right? Yep. So. Definitely. And it needs to be just to just the right height so the sword would hang nicely and what have you. So I took it to a friend of mine in Helsinki who is a um, sort of, should we say, traditional, like, top-end tailor, yeah. happens to be, right? And he adjusted it for me, and it was all done beautifully by hand. And the at mate's rates, getting it adjusted... So the sword would hang right, cost half as oh, much I as the whole Oh, I can already suit. imagine. Yeah, exactly. Because, of course, he wasn't going to do it the way they do it in Singapore, where you've got, you know, basically kind of sweatshops sort of things. And, you know, people sitting at sewing machines going brum, brum, brum. Yeah. He, I mean, the stitching on it is just beautiful. He, he unpicks it by hand and then probably... He unpicked it by it. hand. He got it to just the right place. Did he there, even... Don't tell me he also invited you for a couple of fittings or... Oh, well, it only needed the one fitting because it was... Uh, he wasn't <laughs> adjusting the, the the fit of the jacket uh, itself. He was yeah. just adjusting the split for where the sword went. But yeah. it fits perfectly. <laughs> it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have picked a morning coat to begin with for a sword because it was something developed after people largely stopped wearing swords. But sure. yeah, I can imagine it. It's like... I probably would have suggested, you know, one of those very late 18th century coats with a really dramatic cutaway because... That ah, was yeah. That, people, that would have yeah, solved the that, problem. 
Yeah, that was when people got kind of crazy and had their own thoughts about where they should, uh, where fashion was going to be. Some of them were, it's like it was when people were starting to, you know, no longer wear swords, but some of them who were still wearing swords were really enthusiastic about it and wanted <laughs> yes. to wear their swords everywhere. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you exactly. had several, some pretty insane ideas from that era. Yeah, well, I, I will put a picture of my me on my wedding day with my coat and sword and in the show notes so that people who, who are listening yeah. can sort of hear what we're oh, talking about. I can about. imagine. It's like if you if you alter it correctly, it's going to be quite nice. Oh, yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. And the, the only thing is, I only got married the once, and it's not a sort of thing you can wear to most things. I've worn it to a few parties, but that's pretty much it. I really, what I need to do is to change my lifestyle such that there are more occasions for me to wear my wedding suit. Because <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah, well, it's also like that. Sometimes I kind of thought I've made myself a couple of, you know, modern modern jackets, but mm-hmm. uh, it's actually not quite modern. It's a bit of a hybrid of, uh, you know, it's basically still cut like the nine, late 19th century uh, sack coats uh, that mm-hmm. I learned from, but with modifications to make them look more modern, like a lower gorge line like this V thing. Back mm-hmm. in the late 19th century, it was way up here, right? Yeah. And but in the mo- more modern times, you have more of the shirt showing. So I lowered the gorge line like that, and it's like, unfortunately, I had a really pretty one back in 2013, but I lost it while going home from a translation job in Medan, okay. in Sumatra, another si- another island, and then and then I made another as a replacement. But I was working out, and by the time I was done doing it, about a year later, you know, from the fir- from the time I first cut the pattern, yeah, it no longer fit on the shoulders because my <laughs> traps and deltoids had gone bigger. And then oh, I made a new pattern, and then uh, that was that I got a little bit lazy with that one, so that took two years to finish. And by the time I finished that, my traps and deltoids have grown even larger, and <laughs> we're never going to get the coat that fits. <laughs> Well, actually, uh, I think what you need to do. You need yeah. you need to sit down and think about this because okay, a properly tailored jacket is a is built right. It's a it's a structure yeah. and it is it is a sophisticated yeah thing to to produce right. But what if you could make one that fit like a tailored jacket, but was adjustable in the shoulder dimension? You would make millions. <laughs> Well, actually, there are there were several ideas back then. It's like especially for, you know, uh, hunting clothes. Yeah. You know, action pleats and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's like it still requires the basic pattern to fit pretty well. Yeah. And of course, I think I also made a mistake with those previous two patterns in that I was kind of cutting it a little too close. I think and yeah, Perhaps. but this time I have a decent one that was originally developed for my. Uh, for my jacket, for my Hema jacket, for my mm-hmm. padded fencing jacket, which I finished in early 2020. And I think it's because it was slightly big and uh, in order to, you know, uh, accommodate all the padding. Yeah. Uh, when I modified it to become a coat pattern, oh, it has enough space inside for the structure. 
Right, that's handy. Huh. But, yeah. So do you make do you make clothes for other people as a business? I at all. It's like it's an on and off activity. I did ah, that okay. mostly in the mid 2010s, but like, yeah. and then got lazy. <laughs> like I say, well, it's, oh, it's a hard thing to make money at because most people don't understand yeah. why why handmade clothes are expensive. Yeah, and I still make uh, clothes for a few people. It's like mostly family and sometimes mm-hmm. very close friends. You know, the ones who don't. Ma- it's like the ones who are. Uh, who don't mind the time needed because it's like they know mm-hmm. that I never, I I often get kind of OCD about the quality of the finish and everything and often mm-hmm. just disassemble and redo things if I don't like what <laughs> it <laughs> Well, it happens with furniture too, right? Sometimes you, uh, sometimes you don't make a big mistake, but it looks wrong. So you, so you uh, take it apart again and then tweak it a little. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and the the dry fit, it's it's common to before you glue the thing together, yeah, you I put know it together without the glue, and see whether everything is coming together properly, and then open it up and glue it up. It takes enormous confidence to do the glue up without a dry fit first, um, yeah. and sometimes I do that. I mean, with when it's dovetails. I don't like to put my dovetails all the way together unless it's the final thing. So yeah, I because once you stick it, it's gonna be pretty hard to to disassemble again. Yeah, yeah, and if they dovetails should fit properly the first time. First time around, yeah. Um, but you know, it's, we all make mistakes, and, and for, in some projects, I actually when I make a mistake, I highlight it. So, for example, um, let me just turn the camera around so you can see it. This little chest of drawers under yep. my monitor. There you are. Say hello to yourself. Ha uh, <laughs> Right. Um, this little chest of drawers here has, uh, I just, I made it to sit my monitor on and to, for my pens. So it's got Ooh, nice. drawers for pens and things. And it's got like various sort of bits and pieces. But... There are several mistakes on it. For example, I mean, the worst mistake is here on this. This drawer front is made of cherry, which yeah. has um, these sort of bits missing. Where where the tree has grown, you've got this kind of very waning edge. So I filled yeah. it up with resin and it all looks lovely. And then I took this one very unusual, completely unique piece and... Okay cut it four millimeters shorter than it should be <laughs> right so it's got these little these little cherry strips on the ends here yeah. right because I had to basically stretch a <laughs> piece of wood and make it bigger um, and there's yeah that's on this which drawer is it um, yeah it's like this, this drawer here has this this walnut stripe here Right, where I routed out the groove for the drawer bottom on the wrong side of the wood. And so instead of patching it with ash or just making a whole new piece, which wouldn't have taken very long, uh, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to fill it up with walnut so I can, I have a sort of a preserved memento of my complete inability to sensibly make furniture. <laughs> yeah, well, that kind of thing is like, that kind of brings up that, you know, in t- 
tailoring in historical garments, you often see many of those mistakes that would not be forgiven today. It's like, right. So it's like you cut, you cut this. Uh, the fabric is just a little too narrow for his skirt. People now would panic. People back then would just, oh, okay, just cut a small triangular piece and patch it in there. Right. Well, because when the materials are really expensive, you simply can't afford to just throw away a panel. Yeah, but that's not even uh, that's not even the 10th century when everything was pieced. That we still see that in the late 19th century, maybe even in the early 20th centuries. Like there are some really good, high quality garments, and then you see those that kind of piece uh, piecing there, which might shock people today. But back then, uh this guy is. Uh, maybe people would have thought, ah, oh, this guy is creative and, you know, working with the constraints of the material available to him. It's okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, you're, by profession, you're a translator, right? Yeah, and interpreter. So, okay, so that must really help with working with historical sources. It kind of... Or do you not have those languages? It kind of depends. It's like yeah. it does help in knowing that, you know, translations are always, uh, you know, uh, interpretations. Yeah, it's like there's there's no trans. Uh, the there's a bit of an irony. It's like translators and interpreters often try to make themselves invisible. Yeah. So it's like, uh, depending on the client and everything, sometimes they want. Uh, they want the experience to be as if they were talking or, you know, talking to the people. They were, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, to the subject directly or reading the words of the author directly. But in reality, we know that there's never any, you know, there's never, there's no such thing as translation or translation without any kind of, you know, tweaks to, you know, without any yeah. tweaks to, what is it uh, to take account of how those different languages conceptualize things? Right. Yeah, it's there, kind of like what? Sorry, I, was just, I mean there are a few very simple phrases <clears throat> which work okay from language to language. Like, please open the door. It's not open to much construction, but in some languages, just please open the door gets complicated because. You would say it differently depending on what sort of person you're talking to. If you're talking to somebody your social superior, you may have to say it differently to somebody who is perhaps a child or who's someone who's to whom you are senior. So you that have actually, yeah, that's that's one of the things that applies in in the in both Indonesian and Javanese. Okay, it's like Indonesian is uh, Indonesian. The formal variant is very easy to learn. The grammar is okay. pretty simple. It has no tenses. We live in an eternal no present. Yeah. <laughs> that would make life so much easier. Oh my yeah, God. It also makes things complicated when you translate from Indonesian to English because if you're right. not used to reading Indonesian, you're gonna, you might get confused about is this happening in the past or in the future or, uh, or how do you convey sometimes it's neither sometimes you have to convey that sense of eternal present that indonesians right. feel when they talk like huh. uh, we so, have I mean, you, you must what? have a way of saying like this happened in the past or this will happen in the future there has to be some way of yeah 
we usually okay. add the time marker so it's like ah. uh if if you say uh if you say i'm it's like if you just say saya makan it could mean i ate or i'm eating or i will eat but if you add the time like saya makan uh, saya makan kemarin that's i ate to yesterday suddenly just by adding yesterday oh that happened in the past okay so so you say i go to pub yesterday i go to pub to today i go to pub tomorrow and yeah, that will give do. you the the sense of yeah and there's also a word that functions similarly to will akan and it's like it's very formal you'll never see people using it in uh you know in everyday conversation but if you're a foreigner people just expect you to use that so yeah there's almost like <laughs> okay. a different language uh, a different register of the language entirely for foreigners where people are going to give uh, forgive more mistakes and let you sure. get away with a lot of things so yeah, that's one of the hardest things about learning to speak finnish when I was yeah. learning Finnish many moons ago, is that in English, English people are completely used to hearing people speaking English for whom it's not their first language. So um, every, pretty much every English speaker is used to making accommodations for what the person probably means, Yeah. right? Whereas in, in Finland, when I was learning Finnish in the early 2000s, Yeah, there aren't that many. There weren't very speakers. many non-Finnish speakers. <laughs> uh, there weren't many, very many foreigners living in Finland who were learning Finnish, right? So yeah. the Finns had no experience of hearing bad Finnish and thus making allowances. So they would genuinely not understand what you just said <laughs> because you made a minor grammatical mistake. Ouch! Right? Yeah, it made it really hard um, because you know. When you know, we're speaking Italian, Italians are used to bad Italian because half of them speak bad Italian, and my Italian friends can shout at me all they want for saying that, but it's true. Yeah, it's like right? Italian. It's like the only people who speak real Italian are Romans, right? They Or, would say so, <laughs> but my Tuscan friends would disagree. <laughs> well, yeah, you're probably right. Um, well, so uh, what languages do you speak fluently? Uh, well, fluently Indonesian and mm -hmm. English, obviously. And mm -hmm. I have somewhat, you know, it's like I listen fluently in Javanese, but I speak rather awkwardly in it because I'm, you know, it's like, uh, it's that thing again. It's like I'm not used to using the upper or lower registers. I I know how to speak in the middle register, like mm -hmm. when you're talk, speaking to an equal or somebody who's only yeah. slightly inferior or superior to you that you could just uh, wave it off. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the, you know, the difficulty of having a, of being somewhat partly self-educated in a, in a westernized internet online environment. Mm -hmm. You tend to, you te it's like you tend to not develop that sense of, you know, uh, who's higher than you, who's lower than you, because yeah, yeah, you're yeah. used to talking to foreigners who just assume you're an equal. Yeah, and it's like I still want to learn Japanese better, especially for talking up and down like that. But yeah, it's like for the moment, I guess I'd call myself moderately fluent in the middle register. But if I have to talk some to somebody who's 
much older than me or much higher in social rank than me then do. <laughs> and then yeah, I tricky. think I'm also moderately fluent in Sundanese, the local language here mm-hmm. in Bandung. Okay. Uh, because the the ethnic group here is Sundanese and I've lived here practically for my almost my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so it's like so one, two, three, four, that's English. Indonesian, English, Javanese, and Sundanese. And then for, you know, it's like, I think I can speak tourist French and German. Okay, that's pretty like, good. Like, I can buy a baguette. Yeah, <laughs> c'est français pour acheter une baguette, mais pour les choses plus compliquées. Je ne comprends pas. I can buy a baguette, but anything more complicated, bye. It's yeah. like, and then I have, you know, like I probably have a three or four, two or three year old kids level of proficiency, no things I guess. And then I'm also, but if you, if at the really beginner, at the really beginner level, I'm studying many languages like Latin, Italian, Russian. Russian, I mostly know greetings and military terms. So if you ask me to read something about a Russian a reconnaissance strike complex, then maybe I'll understand about 25% of the words. But if you tell me to read a newspaper, I'd probably just stare at it blankly. So, you know, I've had that same experience in Italian. Like when I lived in Italy in 2015 for a bit, um, I had this fantastic conversation in a car with Andrea Conti and somebody else in the car whose name I'm blanking on. Um, and we were chatting about Vadi and historical fencing in terms of Vadi's Teatro um, Gladiatore di Candy, which I was working on at the time. And we had this entire conversation in Italian, no problem. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, my Italian isn't great, but it's good enough for that. Um, but as soon as we get off the subject of historical martial arts... I, I, I couldn't I couldn't have a conversation about you know food or clothes or the news or any of that stuff in Italian because I just don't have the vocabulary for it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty understandable. Yeah, it's like I'm. Yeah, it's like if you're asking how many languages I speak fluently, then I guess just those four. But yeah, it's like that lower levels of proficiency. French, I guess I can fill Spanish too. Well, Spanish is quite easy. Yeah, but that, why do they have so many tenses? But okay, the, the secret to, to speaking Spanish, because I, I lived in Peru when I was a kid, and yeah. my social life was conducted in Spanish, so it's the, it's the only non-English language that I've ever been like conversationally completely yeah. comfortable in. Um, and what you do is... You just don't bother with the tenses so much. You just use whichever tense you feel like and it'll be fine. Uh, so right? It's only really in written Spanish that you have to be like super like precise. Because there's spoken Spanish is very relaxed and so written Spanish is very formal. Spoken so. Spanish is kind of like quantum mechanics. It has a probability value for the tenses. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, my Spanish friends right now will be jumping up now and going, that's not quite true, guy. We do care. But, you know, you've got future, you've got your future, there's 
options, just pick one. There's the present, there are options, just pick one. And if you don't know what you're doing, use a subjunctive. You can always just use a subjunctive. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like that kind of lower level. I think I also have it in German, you know, the degree where mm-hmm. you might have just enough to order food at a restaurant. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like, of course, I needed to study the German, you know, the German sources especially the Lichtauer stuff but mm-hmm. the funny thing is when I speak German somehow I it's like it's so weird because I you know there's normal German people speaking sometimes I watch Deutsche Welle and they sound like normal people but whenever I try to speak German I always sound like a mad scientist <laughs> <laughs> well I, I go to Germany fairly regularly or I did pre-pandemic and um, I, I think there are pretty much like three words you have to know to take part in German conversation. And that's, yeah, this is yes. No, this is no. And genau. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of like. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, genau. It's like, yeah. It's a sort of a, a social filler word that you just, you can use it in pretty much any situation. And when telling a, a group of students to go off and do the thing you just told them to do, Los. Uh, okay. Los. Which is like, get on with it, I think. I mean, it could be that my German students are lying to me and actually these, these words have completely different meanings and they're all just quietly laughing into their very large steins of beer. But, um, oh, yeah. But no, so, yeah, four words. Uh, ja, nein, um, no. genau, los. and los. Yes. genau, los. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, clearly from your what you said about the Russian military stuff, you have a, a fairly deep interest in military history. And there's a lot of that on your blog at sillynewsboy.wordpress.com. Yep. Um, so why did you choose that name for your blog? Oh, well, that was a bit of a... I, I wasn't in the mood to think about you know, picking a name. And at that mm-hmm. time, I was an avid wearer of uh, newsboy caps that I made myself, obviously. Okay. I still do when I go outside, but these days, I'm mostly at home, so I don't wear caps. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like, I think I even explained that in the blog, but it's in a page that I wrote years ago and then forgot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it's still there. Okay. Yeah, so. Um, so, but you write about military history. So that's obviously connected in some sort of indirect way to the historical sword fighting stuff. So what what is it in your head that makes all these things fit together? Yeah. The weird thing is I'm actually more familiar with military history and military science in general than with, than with swordy stuff. It's like, Okay. I practically, you know, it's like uh, with the sword things, I was only able to, you know, practice it for real, basically in the starting from 2010, 2011, like mm-hmm. that. I only had started getting an idea of what it takes to get to get good. But, uh, well, military history and military science, I've been reading stuff like that since I was eight or something. Like, uh, like in the encyclopedia, Back then, when my parents bought encyclopedias, well, I usually re- read the world history sections first. Okay. And yeah, and 
of course part of it stemmed from my uh from that from that age old desire to be a fantasy writer of course you have to know history to make a good uh to do proper world building but i guess it's kind of like that it's like you start it you come in you come in there for world building but then you just get interested in it and started learning how complicated historiography is and mm-hmm. i think the funniest thing is like It's like the more you know about it, the more we, the more I start to appreciate how the uncertainties of history. So it's like sometimes there are times when we just have to say we don't know. Yeah. But yeah. The problem Which is very is, hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and sometimes that's also the kind of thing when we're reading sources for historical martial arts, right? But mm-hmm. on the other hand, that's history for history's sake itself. Like finding, if not uh, finding, it's not exactly finding the truth, but finding better questions that lead us closer to the truth. But sometimes uh, it's like you finally get to a point where the questions become unanswerable because the sources are just unavailable or too contradictory. Now, but but there's also the other side of history, which is history as, you know, something that we take lessons from, something that we use to inform policymaking, decision-making, and all that kind of stuff. And in that kind of thing, you eventually have to draw lessons from extremely incomplete information, right? And that's really mm. more like what we do in historical martial arts. You try to fill it in with what we call the frog DNA. I and sometimes that, that leads oh. us to down completely the wrong path. And Yes. And, and, and frog DNA, it comes from the movie Jurassic Park. Yeah. And it's like, No, this is not what we're doing at all. It's not even remotely comparable to frog DNA. And yes, oh, you, you accidentally hit one of my buttons. <laughs> Let's yeah. pretend it didn't happen. And, and please carry on. I just didn't. Yeah, no, but it's kind of yeah, but it's kind of you know, it's the how weird that one is. It's a bit like, but talking about uh, but when this while we're while we're discussing Jurassic Park, there's also that funny thing. It's like. Jurassic Park back in the 1990s. I remember seeing it in the theaters when it first came out. I was still a yeah. kid and I was really impressed. But that Jurassic Park back then really made use of cutting-edge research into paleontology. Yes. Their dinosaurs were really up-to-date. The T-Rexes were no longer, you know, hulking brutes that had to leave their tails on the ground to balance themselves. Yeah, they were. they had a more horizontal body position with the tail used to balance in a much more active position when they run. Yeah. yeah. But by the time it's rema- uh, we get the sequels in Jurassic World, it suddenly, it's like people already got attached to the image of the uh, dinosaurs according to the 1990s state-of-the-art research. So when we try to give hmm. them the, an image, a more up-to-date image according to current research where the Velociraptor is actually much smaller because Jurassic Park was made during an era when uh, when it's like there's another kind of dinosaur that's the right size for Jura- Jurassic Park raptors. It's Deinonychus. Deinonychus, like a okay. terrifying claws. Yeah. 
it's actually the right size mm-hmm. but at that time in the early 1990s uh, there was a proposal that it was a junior synonym to velociraptor that they were actually the same genus that they were similar enough that they shouldn't be put in separate genus just that one is a different species from the other uh, but later on we pro- we found out that that's not the case that the deinonychus is different enough that it should be in a different genus but the name stuck and deinonychus isn't quite as easy to pronounce in english and it maybe doesn't sound as cool so the raptor stayed that size and it's like <laughs> we also know that their appearance now is more like murder chickens right if you saw them yeah. you still be terrified And of course, if you've seen chicken in farms, you'd be even more terrified to see a chicken that size. But yeah, it's like, I guess, uh, you know, the film executive thought that if you see a chicken that size, you're going to laugh because it's on, a, it's on a screen, not a real chicken trying to attack you, in which case you right. know that it's about to murder you. So they stuck to the old things. It's like, it's a very similar, it's... And this, and they cleverly retconned that by saying that a great deal of that mistake was from the use of frog DNA instead of bird DNA. Yeah. That's basically you know modern dinosaurs, bird or crocodile DNA. Yeah. DNA. Well, crocodiles aren't <laughs> dinosaurs, but it's like other than birds, they're the closest thing, right? Yeah, sure. I, I was honestly not expecting a disquisition on the um, historical inaccuracies in Jurassic Park, but I'm very glad we accidentally <laughs> stumbled into that area. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, but um, it's like, it's also, it also has a bearing on historical martial arts. Absolutely, because it's it does. Like, yeah. it's, if you stick frog DNA into a dinosaur instead of chicken, then you get something that what is it diverges that thing away towards looking yeah. more like a frog it's it's like if you put sport facing like, dna into medieval combat that is probably going to work less well than putting um say traditional japanese sword fighting stuff into the medieval combat because they're actually much closer in terms of their intent and structure Also, in that sense, we also have to be careful because a lot of what was going on in the Middle Ages was more sporting than we think. <laughs> well, absolutely true. Like yeah. Tournaments and jousts and what have you, that's, that's where yeah. reputations were made. So, you know, yeah, like doing really the well at the tournament of... was like getting an Olympic gold medal. You know, uh, so it, yeah. you're basically set yeah. for life. So, I have a couple of questions that you're probably familiar with because I have a feeling you've probably listened to one or two episodes of the podcast before. Um, yep. And my first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? My entire life is a story of best ideas I never acted on. Really? Yep. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of sad. So, yeah, it's like... It's like one of the things that we discussed back, uh, before yeah, in the lead up to this interview was that, yeah, my childhood dream was to be, uh, was to be a fighter pilot. Also, mm-hmm. later on, I just wanted to be able to fly. But yeah, it's like... It's so good. I haven't been able. Yeah, it's like I've been in a glider, held the controls, and I think I've also been in a... You know, I've also 
been in a, uh, I was also given the chance to you know to fiddle with the controls a little in a like in a light in an was light it, um, oh it, it was a kit plane it was a kit plane okay it was a Piper Cub kit plane wow you know, it's like Piper Cubs are no longer built right so yeah, it's like people these days only sell and you know assemble and build them themselves as kits and it's like uh one of my friends had one and i it's it's like even so i wasn't really get, uh in sole control <laughs> he was just yeah was sure. but it's like yeah it's actually that's the weird thing i'm not a good driver at all as in automobiles or motorcycles mm-hmm. because I think my sense of space in a vehicle has been permanently shaped by that thing in the air. It's like, it's like if you're in a car, you have to get comfortable with a car being just maybe three or four meters away from you, right? But yeah. if you're in an aircraft, if there's something three or four meters away from you, then you've already collided. Yeah, or you are <laughs> a world-class stunt aerobatics pilot team. doing aerobatics. Yeah, you're, you're just like, oh my god, that scared the shit out of me just seeing it. Yeah, it's like, um, but yes, I mean, you're right. And and the weird thing is, driving a car, the only kind of controls you have are speed and yaw. Yeah. Right. You can't roll. Right, and you can't yeah. pitch. Pitch. <laughs> right. There's yeah. no there's no pitch and there's no roll. It's like I've only been flying for a little bit, and I've been driving cars for like thirty years or more. But immediately, it's like getting back in the car. It's like, why can't I bring the nose up? <laughs> yeah, it's like, and and it's so, and well, come on, and come on, seriously. If you've been in most civilian planes, you turn the and then you get in a car, you turn the wheel, and you expect the car to roll, right? Yes, absolutely. And if you're on the very very tight corner, it will roll a little bit. But the roll in a car is undesirable. But the roll in the plane is like is what you want to change direction. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So, and of course, so the most you... difficult thing to adapt. Yeah. yeah it's what, like what stopped you from what stopped you from becoming a fighter pilot? <laughs> okay, one. I'm short. <laughs> okay. Like I'm about three or four centimeters too short to get into the air force. Ah. Okay. That's that's uh, the sort of constraint. There's not much you can do about. Yeah. Also, honestly, I I can tweak that with putting a six hole on my shoe to reach the rudder pedals because. You know, it's like, and it's like if I was in a Soviet plane, it would probably not be such a big deal because, you know, the thing I notice is that I've been in, you know, fighter pil- fighter con- uh, cockpits on the ground, of course, mm-hmm. you know, air shows and all. It's much easier to do that when you're just visiting an air show and asking to be shown. In. And it's like sure. sometimes the American cockpit cockpits feel like they're built for people who are, you know, really big. Yeah, well, they are. Yeah, and it's like so. It's like sometimes. Well, I've been. I've also been in a Mig Twenty One cockpit, and many Americans found that cramped, right? But mm. for me, uh, it's okay. It's like it's not the most comfortable, but it's pretty manageable. Right. So sometimes it's also a matter of the uh, of the aircraft built to different uh, ergonomic constraints. Sure, and and some like in civilian planes, like the the Cessna one five two that I'm going to fly in, it has an adjustable seat, so you can be pretty short and still reach the pedals. Well, um, you could even adjust the pedals and the yokes 
to some degree, right? They're they're all. Uh, I don't. I think that's just. I don't think the pedals or the yoke can be adjusted for your yeah, ergonomics. Not, it's not just like just not the from the cockpit, but it's like during maintenance you could tweak it a little. Oh, possibly. Easily. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but the first plane I ever flew long ago in Helsinki was an Icarus, which mm. has actually has fixed seats. So if you if you're the wrong height for the plane, that's yeah. it. It's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, which which yeah. strikes me, you know, putting in an adjustable seat isn't that much of an engineering challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it's like just put in a reel, right? <laughs> yeah. So, it's so like, you're not a fighter pilot because you're too short. Well, that's fair enough. So, what what yeah, other well, what other good ideas have you had that you haven't acted on? Because you seem to have actually acted on quite a lot. You know, you started at historical fencing club, and you have blogs, and you make clothes. Yeah, and that's also the thing it's like another is not well being a pilot is I'm not really such a huge it's not such a huge bummer because I guess I think that if I could get abroad and live there for a couple of years then it's gonna be easier to find places where I could uh, get training as a pilot on, on a hobbyist level because in Indonesia here the difficulties usually uh, most pilot schools only provide the ones, uh, the the kind of education program that leads to the airline track. Right. So it's very expensive. Yeah. So it's like it's not only very expensive, but it you it pretty much you have to go all the way to the CPL to the commercial pilot license level, and yeah. then the ATPL, the air transport pilot licensing. Mm-hmm. I just want the PPL. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, come come to the UK, and I will yeah. take you up. <laughs> yeah, I would gladly do that if I whenever when I get the chance and the money because yeah, yeah uh, it's not cheap. It is not cheap. It took me yeah. ten years to work myself to the point where I could just about afford to start actually taking it seriously. It took ten years yes. of actually working towards it. Yeah, it's even more yeah. expensive here, and it's like really? the other thing is that many. Okay. Huh? Well, yeah, it's like. Maybe fuel is slightly cheaper, but it's more expensive relative to the average income. Ah, right. Okay, yes, of course. Relative to income, it is uh, yes, and vastly the more expensive. Other thing is, and the other thing is that uh, sometimes in, I don't know w- what it's like in the UK, but I've been, uh, you know, uh, I've been to some places where, you know, there are flying clubs that allow you to you know help out with maintenance and just sure. general uh, random duties in the hangar and on the on the airfield and it's like for every 10 hours or 5 hours you do that you get one flight hour for free yeah it's like that, does that kind of scheme that's mostly is, in America yeah. I think I've not seen that yeah, in, in the UK US, but, but I know I know at least one person um, who, who got their license that way yeah unfortunately there's no such thing like that in Indonesia or if there are then it's usually in some really kind of distant club that you know mm. only a few people can vi- can afford to visit regularly well yeah you need you need a private pilot's license and a plane just to get there another good idea I haven't acted on well learn how to operate a sewing machine properly <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good. I'm pretty good at hand sewing, but it's like when I run a sewing machine, there's a about a fifty percent chance of things getting bored, or maybe rather forty percent chance of things getting okay, forty percent chance of things being bored, and ten percent chance of the 
sewing machine starting to s- smoke or parts fly okay. flying away. Okay, so you you could just get someone who knows how to do it to teach you and actually practice and get good at yeah, it. Yeah, but it's kind of it's yeah it's like but I'd like somebody who'd be able to you know uh, point out my mistakes because it's like ah uh, it's like. People think that you know sewing with a sewing machine sh- should be easier than hand sewing, right? But in my experience, it's not. You also need skill to you know, uh, what is it to adjust the uh, thread tension on the top and yeah. the bottom because you only need to screw up one of them to screw up the complete, uh, the, to yeah. screw up the whole line. I've, of I've used a sewing machine and I've done some hand sewing and yeah, hand sewing is slow but reliable. Yeah. Sewing machines for me, I've used them a few times, and it's like, okay, do I want to spend twenty hours getting a solid familiarity with the machine before I actually do a project, or do I want to just spend those twenty hours producing the project by hand? Yeah, it's I like mean, it's it's like I I I don't look down on people who use sewing machines because I know just getting the machine are. running without fucking anything up that's that takes skill. It absolutely Actual does. Like, I used to type with like two or three fingers, right, really slowly, and it was dreadful. Yeah. And many years ago, a friend of mine, maybe about twenty fifteen or twenty fourteen, perhaps, a friend of mine who I was chatting with over the internet, basically, because I said typing is really slow, can we just switch to a voice call? And he was like, "What? You can't touch type." And I was like, no. He's like, God, you're a writer. You need to know how to touch type. And I'm like, well, I'm not really a writer, but okay. And so I actually, I was sort of shamed into it. And I learned to touch type. And it took me about a month of being really uncomfortable. And it was just, it was just horrible because my fingers wouldn't go where they're supposed to go. And it was just like, Ugh. but I stuck with it. And now I touch type and have done for years. And it is transformative in yeah. the amount of text I can produce in a reasonable time it's yeah. so I would I would I would recommend if you actually have a sewing machine and you actually like sewing as you seem to do it's probably worth just, just don't 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 make anything but just um, sort of do like technical studies of okay how do we set the thing up for this kind of stitch and how do we run this kind of material through and all that and just spend a little while doing the technical practice to master the machine. And you'll probably find it doesn't take you two years to make a jacket. (laughs) Well, I guess it's like for my own jackets, I'm still going to take quite a while because, you know, it's like some of these old patterns, they have many parts that are really, that simply can't be done by machine. That are really awkward to do by machine, especially when you get to the curved seams. But yeah. Yeah, it's like for everyday stuff, like just repairing my shorts when the, you know, when the pocket corners start developing holes. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. would have been so much faster if I could use a sewing machine. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe Uh, next time we talk, you'll be, (laughs) you'll be an expert on the machine. Okay. My last question. But I might get competent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... Okay, you, you must be expecting this question, not least because I did send you the questions before we talked, but if you had yeah. a million pounds to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? 
there's so many things that I could use it on. It's like maybe it's not exactly on historical martial arts, but it's like I w- I've wanted for a while to hire people to do a latent transcription of some 16th century Malay treatises on archivists, uh, archi- archivists. You know, uh, you know, uh, early yeah. firearm shooting. Yeah, because there, so, there are Malaysian in- treatises. Uh, more um, like Malay because it's like uh, we don't exactly know which side which side of the street it is. It could be from the Indonesian side, from the Sumatran side, or it might be from the Malaysian side because oh, I see. Know, Sorry, so Malay yeah. as a language, not Malaysia as a place. Yeah. Okay, uh, um, Malay and it's so there are. Yeah, it's like, do you say there are 16th century Malay? sources on using arquebuses um maybe not exactly 16th i don't remember the exact uh time but it was the malay was already fairly modern so it mm-hmm. couldn't be it it's like it couldn't be that much further back than the 13th century or so and you know it's like obviously you get guns mostly in the modern modern uh looking firearms mostly through yeah. ottoman and portuguese imports in the 16th century Mm-hmm. So it's like at the earliest it's the 16th, but it could be the 17th or 18th because these uh, weapons, these matchlocks, kept getting used in the islands uh, in the in the what is it in on the Malay Peninsula and the islands of what is now Indonesia and the Philippines into the 19th century or so. So you have access to these sources in Malay. They're actually. There are actually several, you know, uh, pretty good publicly available facsimiles. Wow. But they are in Malay. And yeah. the Malay isn't very old. It's like you could, if, you, if you could read it, I could, I could probably understand it. It's like uh, the average modern Indonesian would be only slightly confused by the choice of words. But okay. the problem is that Malay at that time was mostly written in Arabic script, in a Malay Arabic script. Ah, so you need someone who can read the Malay Arabic script, yeah, and romanize it into something that can be read, yeah, yeah. Because once Malay we romanize readers. it, okay. it would suddenly become much more available to researchers everywhere, right? That isn't going to cost a million dollars. That that's something that we could actually do. Yeah, but it's like sometimes it's. Well, that's back to the best IDs you've never acted upon. It's like sometimes sure. I just collect these IDs and then forget to... Well, okay, tell you what, tell you what. Them. Send me links to those sources and I will put them in the show notes. And it's not impossible that there's someone listening to this podcast who actually has that skill and then they can get in touch with me and tell me how much it's going to cost to get it romanized. Possibly. That's not... Yeah, send, send me the links. I'll put them in the show notes and we'll see what happens from there. You never know. We might I get should, super lucky. Yeah, it's like I should also... Because there are so many of those weird sources that I, you know, stuck in the back of my mind, but have it's like there's also the... Uh, there's also one of the things that I've written about in my blog. It's like there's a, an early 15th century German translation of Fagisius... Uh, mm-hmm. Where I read in a book uh, about the reception of Egyptians that uh, that intra- that translation interestingly has an addendum and a commentary by the contemporary translator that mm-hmm. uh, knights, uh, which in this case was a translation for the tiro for the re- re- legionary recruit, 
the knight should learn a knife and sword. Does that sound familiar? Oh, master, which fair? Like in the listen hour uh, treatises, uh, you should learn glyphs, pair, uh, master, which fair. And yeah. it's like I want to find that exact passage, and it's like. It's like the treatise is uh, publicly available. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a good, there are good scans, but the problem is that the letters are you know those really thick gothic letters uh, mm-hmm. from that era and kind of difficult to read. And it's like obviously you have to read them fairly closely to find out which section is this, whether this is the addendum or just a translation of the original yeah. Latin, right? And uh, it's like. Uh, it's like I haven't been able to find the time to do that, and I. Oh, that's also another thing that I've thought about paying somebody to <laughs> squint at it. Some probably somebody whose eyes are already more damaged than mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so they wouldn't feel so much pain from squinting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, so transli- transliterating. Um, Malay sources, and yeah. yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty good use of the money. Actually, it's very, very on topic for historical martial arts. Excellent. Yeah. Well, if I had the money, I I would give you some of it. I wouldn't I wouldn't give you the money just so you can move out your parents' house, but I would certainly give you the money for the transcriptions. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, and there's also the, yeah, it's like the the other thing because one million. One million dollars goes quite a long way here. It's like sure. that's the equivalent of about fourteen trillion rupiah, and it's like I think with that much money, I probably would be able to put down, uh, you know, maybe a year's rent or even some down payment for a space that I'd be able not to use, not just as a training space and a storage for uh and storage for my club equipment, but it would. I would probably be able to put a library in it too. Maybe even stick a server Dude, uh, with the stuff for people. For a million dollars, you could easily build. A, I mean, I have a I have a space, a training space in Helsinki that is fairly big, and we have a small library and da da da. And it didn't cost me anything like a million dollars. Not yeah, maybe a tenth of that. Yeah, so like I think I, I think I think I if we did. If you did build this thing, um, I mean, if it was maybe in the absolute center of downtown Jakarta, it might cost you a million dollars. But I, I think if you're a bit careful that way you put it, you could afford something yeah. pretty good. Well, for... And land in Bandung is nowhere near as expensive as it is in Jakarta. Well, it is one of the more expensive cities, but it's nothing compared to Jakarta. Right, okay. So, so, we, so we can expect you to be building this... If we can find you a million dollars, we can expect you to be building this historical martial arts training center and library. And, and a server to, you know, as a repository of the scan and transcribe stuff to make it available. Yeah. Because okay. it's like, because it's like, you know, kind of, of course, if you don't make it available to even more people, kind of, what's the point of using a million dollars for it? Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Well, <laughs> brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Pradana. It's been great talking to yeah. you. Yep. Uh, the sentiment is shared on this side of the screen. <laughs> <laughs>